Welcome back to America's leading higher education podcast, The EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. Hosts Dr. Joe Salustio, Elizabeth Liba, and producer Elvin Freites bring you the brightest and most influential minds in higher education today. We explore innovations, ideas, and issues in higher education and beyond, and hopefully have a little fun along the way. Now let's get to it. We all know continuing education and workforce development divisions, you know, the units that offer non-degree programming, need to play a central role in supporting institutional responsiveness and growth. But more often than not, leaders only focus on the outcomes that these divisions drive and rarely think about the infrastructure they need to drive those outcomes. The team at Destiny Solutions, in collaboration with The Evolution, developed a white paper to help explain the role IT systems can play in supporting growth. To download, visit evolutionwith3ls.com system and get the inside track on the importance of tailor-made tech. Again, that's evolutionwith3ls.com system. Welcome back, everybody. This is the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. This is a special... I've been waiting for this one. This is a special EdUp embedded episode where I go one-on-one with a gentleman that I've been waiting a long time to talk to. And his name, he's on the line right now. His name is Tom Wolf, and he is the CEO and founder of EdAid. Tom, what's going on? My friend, it's been a, a pleasure and honor. I think um, long-time listener, first-time caller would be the perfect way to sum up uh, this call and how excited I am. I like that. Fools are first-time caller. That's good. I'll have to use that. Well, listen, you know, but we're going to get into it today, and that's why I've been so excited to talk with you. We've talked before, you know, and kind of kicking it around what's going on with higher ed. That's why I think we're going to have such a good conversation. But I do want to talk about EdAid, and I want to get that that uh, really feature and highlight really what you're doing in the higher ed space right now. It's unique. You're international. Um, you know, so give us a background for those that don't know you. And by the way, Tom's extremely active on social media. So you probably have seen him at some point or the other at this point. Um, so, so Tom, what's going on with EdAid? What do you guys do? Where do you do it? And, uh, and how are things going for you? Yeah, Joe, listen, thanks. We'll, we'll make this very quick. You know me, I don't like these kind of podcasts that become pitching sessions, but you know, we, we care deeply about what we do and effectively EdAid partners with universities, colleges, and professional schools to enable students from underrepresented backgrounds, um, low-income families, first-generation college students to be able to access programs up front and then pay for those programs over time, interest-free. You know, we believe that, you know, uh, that all students from all backgrounds should be able to access fair, affordable education. And so we partner with really ambitious, bold schools that believe in access and affordability. Um, to ensure that all students can get access, not just the wealthier students to the best programs. And then we help those students level up by getting you know, gainfully employed or starting their businesses after they graduate. And we'll support somewhere between 20 and 30,000 students this year, typically focused on professional vocational courses or one year taught masters, STEM, law, finance is really our sweet spot. And you do this uh, in how many countries across the world now? Uh, yeah, well, increasingly now, we've probably funded students from about 150 countries. Our core base is US, Canada, UK, mainland Europe, Middle East via Dubai and the UAE, and we'll come back to that a bit later. And then Australia, um, yeah, we, we launched on a soft launch last year and really kind of growing through the Asia Pacific region at the moment. Yeah, so what you guys are doing is 
deferred tuition programs, right? Is that the best way right. to sum it up? And and for somebody that's listening right now that only knows Title IV lending and you pay back your loan and you know maybe go into debt, maybe not go into debt, what is deferred tuition and why do you think it's important? Yeah, so uh, from, from first principles, deferred tuition enables a student to study on a program at an accredited institution or a vocational school and spread the cost of those payments over time. And some of those payments will either be regular payments um, in line with their studies, um, and many will be kind of um, income contingent so the student will study, and then once they earn over a threshold, they'll start paying for those um, tuition payments. They'll never pay more than tuition. Um, we're fully regulated um, in every country we operate in. We don't kind of live in the dark ISA arts, um, and you know, we believe in in linking effectively tuition payments with outcomes. And so we partner with the education provider um, effectively acting as their lending as a service platform. And so it is credit, students need to understand that they're taking on a financial obligation and EdAid provides the technology and the servicing to our university partners to effectively ensure that students can avoid taking on high cost private debt and can find, and that if a student can afford to pay upfront, a student who pays via deferred tuition never pays any more than someone that pays upfront. And so you're really trying to drive that fairness and that affordability and not punishing those who don't have the cash upfront to pay. Well, and so, and so there's two different models of, of deferred tuition. There's income-based payments, there's, and then you can just have flexible payment plans, which I know you offer both. Income-based right. payments are really interesting, right? And that, that's a good part for us to start our discussion. It, you know, higher ed is, is and you know well, as well as I do, Tom, it, get kicked while we're down because students take debt and they don't pay that debt back. Yeah. Um, because, you know, it, look, it, I'll, I'll give you, I'll use myself as an example here, all right? I went to a state school in New York uh, of the SUNY system. Now, not super, not super expensive, but you know, I didn't come from a wealthy family. I was lower middle class. My, both my parents worked and worked hard. I, I went to school. I had to take out my own loans. My parents took out loans in their name to help me. The parent plot. sounds awfully familiar. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 uh, and by the way, while I was in school visa, you know, they, by the way, my wife keeps going in and out of the garage. So there's nothing I can do about that. That's just going to be part of the episode. If you're, if you're hearing the garage door open, yeah, but while I was, uh, um, on campus, I found Visa and I took out a credit card so that I could go to a, all you could drink, uh, you know, at a, at a local bar and I didn't have any money. So uh, I put myself in $11,000 of credit card debt because boy, didn't it sound great to have a credit card at 18 and I'd never even really been exposed to a credit card before. So add that onto my college debt and I come out and I start my first job at $27,000 a year. I could barely pay rent. Um, yeah. I could barely buy anything. And so we're talking about, you know, a single guy, Denver, Denver. I was in Denver, Colorado at the time. I, I getting this job, I'm working my tail off and I can not even really afford to live at that point in $27,000, but I've got tons of debt. So what happens then, right? That's the beauty of income-based payment and income sharing uh, ISAs or whatever you want to call them, where yeah. your payment fluctuates with your job outcome, right? Yeah. Well, I think... Uh... You know, fundamentally, I was I was as very much like you, first in my family to go to university, first generation of student debt in the UK. You, know, you didn't pay for tuition up until 1998 and then kind of came in in, in, in fairly you know, thick and fast and, and made all those mistakes around you know, personal credit and everything else because I came from a family background that we lived on pay away. We lived on right. you know, everything on, 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 on credit and 
the sofa, the, the, the VCR, the TV was on, on pay away. You know, everything, everything was owned by somebody else in our house. And so, you know, probably had a bad relationship. I, I think that's uh, called layaway in the US. Layaway, sorry, exactly, yeah. layaway, sorry, exactly. And so, um, and, and Christmas presents were bought in our catalogs that you paid for over the next following three or four years. And so, but well, my parents both worked very hard and, and, and put me in, in, in at least emotionally and, and mentally in a state about grafting, about hard work. And so I took that with me and kind of fought, fought my own battles and picked up my own scars. But I think you touched upon a really interesting point around financial literacy and affordability. But the UK system is effectively an income contingent payment system. And so I paid for my debt as I earned, there was a there was a hurdle rate which you didn't pay anything until you earned over that rate, and then you paid as a percentage of your income. There are pros and cons for those systems being owned by the government. What we've seen an emergence of, and where you know, we feel very strongly, is that um, ultimately the, the the beauty around financial technology and innovation is that you can now effectively make payments more scalable, students can pay regardless of whether they're employed or self-employed. But what's really important is that, that, that whilst we still believe the government should contribute to education and there should be potentially some incentives there around supporting universities, we really think that the, the, the relationship with the student and the university should be an idea of shared risk and shared reward. And that universities have a huge amount to gain from growing their enrollment, yeah. uh, but also as do students. And so what we do is by partnering with the university, we ensure that the university only gets paid for its outcomes. And if a, if a student doesn't get a credential that's effectively market ready, that's able to help that student level up, then it's going to take a lot longer for that student to pay. Mm. And as a result, now we don't do it in any of these kind of super crazy two and a half times your tuition fee income share agreements. As I said, all of our payment plans are interest free, but our universities are on the hook. There isn't a hedge fund sat in the middle, you know, creating an arbitrage between what it pays the school and what the student pays. Right. And we, we absolutely believe in bringing that relationship. The student success and the university success, we believe are two halves of the same coin. And yeah, you and I have riffed about what that means and how you could build a, a much deeper lifelong relationship for universities, mm. how you see this kind of you know endowment 2.0, and we'll come to that probably a bit later, but certainly on the basic tuition, i.e. I'm doing a one year taught masters, our universities only succeed when our students succeed. And therefore universities are incentivized and aligned both on, both on the education piece, but also the outcome. I was talking to, I'm gonna shift this just a tad because I, I don't want to lose this thought, but I was talking to a guy recently his name is matt jacobson he's the ceo of ducere global business college i don't know if you've come across him before i, I know the name but I, you know, no contact yeah so he um uh he was just basically giving a dissertation to us on why the united states system of higher ed is behind the rest of the world you know three-year bachelor degree programs in other countries that's four years in the united states oh by the way it takes you five and a half years to get that four-year degree uh you know they're even looking he's saying in some countries they're even looking at getting a bachelor's degree down to two years where you don't have to take all that general education you could choose whether you want to take the gen ed or not what do you see because you've got the global perspective too i think you're in dubai right you you uh, office out of dubai Correct. Yeah. So, yeah. so we, we have a global network now out of, out of Dubai and the Middle East. Um, yeah, we're so what's it look like from your view? Uh, where's the United States stand globally? Very dark, very dark here right now because it's late in the evening, but certainly mm -hmm. we get the real benefit by being in the Middle East. I think one thing I'd say is that but first things first, we're part of the higher education ecosystem. And, and I think you and I have both earned our stripes and earned the right to kick the tires a bit. 
But I also, I think we should also pay respect to, to the great work of all of our universities, all of our educators. They've had a, they've had a tough year of adapting and adjusting to, to what we're calling a new normal or you know, the, the, the next kind of 10 years. And I think we should, there are a lot of tutors out there. There's a lot of administrators that care deeply. They may be behind the curve from an innovation perspective, but they'll catch up quick. And 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 they they bring their best selves. they they bring their best selves to universities. And I think we, we 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 try and tear down rather than building up. And in that same view, there are easily could put our finger on kind of a billion students and a billion families out there that are desperate to be part of the UK and US education system that want their children to be able to have just a shot at what we take for granted. And I can't I can't pay homage enough to being able to live in the Middle East, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in India, in Pakistan, in Southeast Asia, and see the lengths and the extent that families will go to just to achieve what we all take for granted. And so whether we've been at a top 20 or a top 50 or a top 100 college, and I'm not gonna get into you know, the value for money or the ROI piece. You know, we have a huge privilege by, by birthright that we live in the United States or the United Kingdom. Um, and. And I think we, we have an opportunity to, to, to think about this, not as how do we attack our current system, it's how do we build a better version of it? And then how do we enable more people from a global perspective to access that? And so rather than trying to say who can outspend and who can outcompete each other for number 99 or 57 on the US news list, to say, how do we grow our enrollments? How do we, how do we use our endowments to enable another million students from around the world to come to the United States and the United Kingdom to study, rather than this kind of, Let's just tear the whole system down because there's, there's a few people who've had a bad experience. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a really good point. Um, I, I will tell you, um, it, it's it's really interesting right now because um, uh, competition's at an all-time high, right, Tom? I mean, you know, yeah. I, I don't know if you saw the, the stats that came out recently. Student Clearinghouse puts out stats. It says, you know, community colleges are seeing a, over a 10% reduction in enrollment. You know, if you add in first-time freshmen, it's like 13.5%, an you know, an unprecedented drop in interested students. So, yeah. so, you know, we have this, to your point, we have the birthright. We have the access to higher ed but people are not accessing it or either they can't access it or they're not accessing it. Now, some of that I think is tied to coronavirus. Some of it's tied to uh, personal risk tolerance, which I've talked talk a lot about, right? Do you want to be the person that goes around to other people? Do you not want to, you know, what's your tolerance for potentially getting sick? So what do schools need to, I mean, enrollment's down and- it's down, but obviously it's it's there's like a we know there's probably a two or three tier higher education system. So you've got the IVs, you've got the competitive, yes. you know, and then you've got the, the rest. And so I think we have a, a kind of trifecta type system. But it takes a bit of boldness and it takes a bit of bravery. I can't I mean, we work with them for full disclosure on a number of areas, but I cannot I cannot applaud the work of two you enough and the, the, the recent announcement of the partnership with Morehouse and bringing back students that have a lot of debt and some college, but didn't complete. I mean, those students run in the multiple millions of students that are carrying no credential, a lot of debt, and, and none of the, be the benefits. And so I think there are some wonderful programs out there around college completion. And I think you'll see a lot of more, but we, we know the great work that Morehouse done, does for you know, African-American men and, and, and to be able to be bringing them back. I think after announcing that they had there's somewhere close to 10,000 graduates in two weeks or non-graduates that have part completed at Morehouse come and say, this is what I needed, an affordable way to get back into the system and complete college. 
And so I think that I think there's a few layers to this. Number one is how do we help all those that have some college credentials or credit hours but not completed get the credential that's going to help them level up to the to the senior manager from the junior manager or from the, the associate to the principal level or from the quite frankly from the, the shop floor to the to the to to to, 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 to the mezzanine level just even just half a level up would, would would help and how do you kind of grow the household gdp at, at an affordable price and i think that's a that's a kind of 10 20 million type students that are sat up there in the us alone I think the next piece is then how do we, we work with a number of students, uh, sorry, universities around their perishable inventory. So you talk about community colleges and I've been the governor of community college. I know the financial strain they're under. Um, it's around how do we help them ensure that students can get back on board affordably. Also cost of acquisition, you know this all too well, the cost of acquisition is growing all the time and universities are giving maybe 20, 30% of tuition fee revenue away to the likes of Facebook, Amazon, <laughs> Google. Yeah, you know, at least. A month, at least. And so how do we find better ways, more affordable ways to bring people back into the ecosystem or acquire students? And um, you know, we think that you know, fair, affordable finance is absolutely the solution there. If you can bake in not only the, the, the education, but a payment plan that's directly linked to paying your your education provider rather than paying high interest rates to a private bank. Uh, and I think that those two pieces, so how do we bring back those students that have got debt, but no credential in an affordable way? And I think that the Morehouse to you partnership is, is an exemplary there in terms of the work and the impact it's gonna have. And then the second piece is how do you enable um, students to feel closer and tighter that, that, that they are, they're paying it. We, do, we, we, we follow a model at Edid where we work with our education providers to create a pool of seats that effectively exists in perpetuity. So they almost come like a, almost like a renewable endowment. So the tuition revenue from those seats goes back into the pot to enable the next generation students from those small communities like the, the CUNYs of this world, um, you know, in, in the five districts to be able to enable students from lower income backgrounds to get access to programs. And then when they're paying their tuition fees, they're not paying back an investment bank or a hedge fund, they're paying back into the pot. So students from their backgrounds and their communities can get access to those programs in the following cohorts. That reduces um, perishable inventory. So there's less empty seats in the classroom. It drives better outcomes and it drives better net revenues for the education provider. And I think when you view it through that lens, it's a kind of win-win-win along the, along the ecosystem. You said something that's important, I think, to point out. So as Tom, you, what you're saying basically here is, I'm going to dial it down to brass tacks, is that you can spend tons and tons of money going after, a, a, you know, looking at a business consumer marketing model with Google, with Facebook ads, whatever. If you bring in a company like EdAid, uh, where the focus is on finance, you've effectively killing two birds with one stone. You're able to bring back or recruit a student who maybe would have left you in the first place because you didn't have an affordable finance plan for them. And secondly, you're packaging their entire acquisition around the financial affordability, which makes them much more likely to retain through the system rather than you go out and you acquire them through Google, you still have to put them through a financial aid process. So there's, there's, they're not wrapped in, baked into the warm embrace of understanding how to afford something. I always say this all the time, you know this. I mean, if you go buy anything that is at the cost of school, right? You think about what the cost of school is and you go buy something, a car or whatever, you don't leave without knowing how much you could pay. 
You don't even think about buying it without knowing how it's going to work out and whether you can afford it based on your job, based on your. In fact, they're going to make you put out what you make. They're going to they're going to run your credit. They're going to check your 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 yearly income to ensure you can pay it back. Education isn't like that. But if it is, to your point, you're much more likely to pay back your loans, much more likely to have a good experience to college. Well, particularly when, when uh, as the education providers we work with, they say, you're not only just going to pay us directly, we're going to cut out all the expensive finance charges, we're going to cut out all the uncertainty of, will you get finance? You spend all the time doing the application, you spend all the time you know, being, you know, filling out the application to go through all the heartache of being accepted or not being accepted, which is incredible opportunity cost. And then you've got to work out how you're going to pay for the thing and survive and live throughout the program and manage your kids. Because as we know, most students don't look like you know, the, 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 our sons and daughters who purchased their first hoodie or letterman jacket and sat on a campus aged 18. The majority of students are hardworking mums who've got two kids at home and are trying to level up and just find a way through to make rent to your point each month. And they're trying to think if I do night school or if I work on study online flexibly or if I do this amazing boot camp at Columbia in data science, I'm going to be able to go from working just in the bank as a teller to be able to you know, not just you know, level up with capital type allocation and stock options and these kind of things, rather than just being, you know, an employee of the employee class. And there's so many opportunities, but the universities say with embedded finance, we don't earn a cent unless you succeed. I think it's transforming the entire conversation. Yeah, you gotta have so skin in the game. Absolutely. And skin in the game is used really light because you can have, you know, you can have a, you know, <laughs> the top level of skin or, or you can live and die by the sword. And I think over the next 10 years, every university will move to a model apart from, I say, the, the very top Ivies. And maybe they should be the ones that are absolutely doing this. But uh, I, I think you, know, you will have a conversation in 10 years time where every university has part of its tuition fee at risk based on outcomes. It's interesting. You know, it really is. And well, let me ask you this. Uh, let's talk. Let's talk finance. You know that uh, loan forgiveness is a, a big topic of uh, uh, of debate here in the United States. And, you know, recently president comes out and he said, you know, he's being asked to forgive fifty thousand dollars in loans for uh, for college students. He says, no way. I'm not going to do that. You know, that's like uh, uh, forgiving, uh, you know, people who bought a Ferrari. You know, you're going to have some people that bought a Toyota and, and you're going to have some people that bought a Ferrari. And why would I forgive the loan debt of those that bought the Ferrari? Where do you think about loan debt? Where do you stand? And if you can take a stand, um, it's OK if you if you toe the line, that's totally fine. Because I, oh, I, I mean, Joe, Joe, you understand with me that there's no toe in the line here. I sounds good to me because I don't either. I, I, I don't believe it can be done. Well, go ahead. You go. You go first. Sorry, just to cut across you. Apologies. I think it's an abject failure of leadership for people to be able to take a position these days. And if, if that involves you know, a difference of opinion, then we should celebrate that. We should embrace it and, exactly. and we should own it. Um, and I think that there's a lot of talk about cancelling or no platforming in higher education at the moment. And, and we need broader voices. We need to challenge each other. We need left and right. Um, and, uh, and any of us have tried to run, you know, carrying an egg and a spoon, know that you need both arms to, to be able to function properly and to, and to move forward. So I think um, yeah, my view of it is that um, we're, we're not even attacking the problem. We're not attacking the problem. And I wish that um, the, the, 
the first order principle was, are we informing and educating anyone who's going to college about the, the cost and the risks and the understanding of that financial obligation properly? Do they understand compound interest? Do they understand like the time value of money? And if we're not solving that problem, you'll be cancelling debt every year because it will be continue to be missold and people will be missing, you know, run down, exactly. run down the pathway. So not for me to ever comment on US politics in terms of government policy, because, you know, those in glass houses and UK politics can't really throw too many stones. But what I do believe is that, um, you know, we have a collective responsibility to, to improve the the education and efficacy. And that's, it's not a K-12 problem. It's absolutely in the moment, right? If, if I sell you a car and I miss sell you that car or that the car is faulty, you know, I as the, both the dealer and the finance provider, so the education provider is, is the car manufacturer, uh, people go to prison, you know, for, for misrepresenting, um, I don't know, uh, emissions data and standards. Right. And so if you can go around and turn and say, well, you 99% of our graduates get jobs within six months earning X amount, and actually that's just blatantly not true or it's a very slick thing, then I think those kind of consequences, there's too long as higher education being viewed with wrapped in cotton wool. Uh, you know, ultimately, our endowments are bigger than collectively than the GDP of many of the nations that surround the United States. And so I think we need to start to embrace the potency and power of those endowments i think we need to ensure that everybody is held accountable if they want to maintain their non-profit state in-state for-profit status whatever that might be but we we could all do a lot better to ensure that transparency and the efficacy of the data we use to sell a product is maintained and, and our belief is that you know, if you if the reason why deferred tuition and this kind of skin in the game model will play out is because consumers will say, I'm not willing to put a dollar in unless you're willing to have a dollar at risk. The higher education marketplace is changing fast, and it can be challenging to stay up to date while ignoring the noise. The evolution is the only source of opinions and insights directly from college and university leaders on the bleeding edge of transformation. We have three L's in our name, and they stand for lifelong learning, which is central to our vision for higher education's future. The evolution is completely free to access, and new articles and interviews are published daily. To subscribe to our weekly newsletter, visit evolutionwith3ls.com slash subscribe. Again, that's evolutionwith3ls.com slash subscribe. Yeah, that's that's you know, and I feel the same way you do. I say, okay, if you're if you're talking about fifty thousand dollars of loan uh, relief uh, forgiveness, you know, take take uh, forty five thousand of that, and it needs to be invested in K through twelve before students ever think about going to college, where they actually have to sign off on the fact that they've learned about compound interest, that they've learned about taking out a loan and why you have to pay it back and what happens when you don't, how that, you know, how that can set you up for failure in life. And if without tackling it at a lower level of education and, you know, the elementary level of education, you perpetuate the problem. And so every year, $50,000 of loan forgiveness, and it it just will be a vicious cycle with no solution. And so I always say, well, where does it stop? What's the solution to solving the problem? That's the part that never comes in. And, and you've got to realize that the, the, the incentives, once you see the matrix, Joe, you understand that the financial services game at a lead level, it'll never, it'll never be written off in terms of that, because all you'll be doing, you won't just be writing off 50,000. But remember, all of these loans have been bundled up and securitized, right? They'll be prime, they'll be subprime, they'll be all sorts. And so the people that will clean up on this is the o- owners of that paper. 
It's not just the students, right? There, there is people have been buying, you know, $100 bills at three, 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 three cents on the dollar. Right. So, so the hedge funds and, and, and this, the fixed income and securitized, you know, you know, credit market will be, I mean, you're handing, you'll be making an enormous handout, not just for middle-class graduates, but the people that own that paper, the banks that sit underneath those student loan services. I mean, you don't even want to go there to see because some of the, the net returns they'll be making by effectively accelerating their payment. So rather than getting their $50,000 over 15 years, they get it in six months. I mean, their return on capital will be, uh, you know, it'd be a nice, it'd be a nice investment if, if, if you yeah. held that paper, that's all I'm saying. But I think we're also losing the point about when you're in government, and I'm sure um, the Biden-Harris um, government now wants to make a big impact. But if we talk about $50,000, uh, for you know, any number of Americans, I, I would much rather see a, an offer to Americans with student debt that they can have ten thousand dollars to go and level up in on the latest boot camp um, with, with the likes of Columbia or Johns Hopkins or UNC Chapel Hill in data science or artificial intelligence or with General Assembly or with Flatiron School or these kind of programs. And not only do they get um, yeah, their $10,000 course that's paid for, but they can nominate four people in their community to also go and do a level up course. And that's how we solve the big chunk of the underemployment. Or quite frankly, that yeah, we have 100% unemployment in the latest numbers by women in America. And I would be allocating that at, in, you know, $50,000 pays for you know, every woman in a female-led household in America to be able to level up and pay for the time for them to be able to do that studying. Right. Rather than forgive the, the loan debt, invest really? in education for really? those that, you know, because the people that are having tr trouble paying back loans for the most part are those that maybe probably or, or probably aren't working in their field. It's possible that they, you know, we know and anybody who studies education knows that law school, <laughs> going to law school can set you back with the, the yeah. biggest loans of, of any program. But a lot of people don't work in the field they went to school for. So they end up doing something else and then they have these loans sitting on the side or they can't find a job or whatever it may be. So yeah, invest in those people to go and learn a skill, right? Short-term investment to learn a skill that will net them dollars so they can go back and pay those loans later. I mean, it is a, it's a great idea. Yeah, so and it's, whether you want to call it a Marshall Plan or a Level Up Plan, you know, we've got, we, we, we use the title called Train for America and I'll share some more about that when, when we come back next time and catch up. But um, you know, it's absolutely that, it's, it's short, um, intense kind of three, six month boot camp style programs, which are technically focused. You come out with a certification that might be going deep on Salesforce, that might be going deep on, on, on HVAC, that might be going deep on um, electric car servicing and, and you know, PHEV vehicles, or it might be cybersecurity and data analytics, but they're short, they're intense, you get a credential, you end up with no debt. So if the government has $50,000 per graduate equivalent sloshing about, I would absolutely be splitting that in five and leveling up five Americans for each one you want to bail out. Well, that's interesting. Such an interesting way to put it and, and look at it. And, you know, higher ed, what do you think is going to happen? I'm, I'm Tom, we, we, there, you know, go back to last year. A lot of people saying colleges are going to close. Not there's been some, there's been some mergers and acquisitions. There's been some investments, right? The university of Arizona goes out and buys Ashford. They go online immediately with 30,000 students. Uh, but for the most part, we haven't seen uh, there, there's been more consolidation than anything, right? The, the schools in uh, what New Hampshire, the schools in Wisconsin, all coming together, their public systems, uh, you know, effectively turning five into one, whatever. What do you think is going to happen? 
to the what do you think is going to happen to the middle right you talked about the three-tiered educational system that we they work and we've got the career schools we have the nonprofit. i always say it's the nonprofit private schools between what a thousand and five thousand students somewhere in there and then you've got the the you know more elite institutions the ones with bigger scale that are that are probably doing okay what do you see happening well, I think first, I think we've spent the last 20, 30 years in the management consultancy kind of cost cutting you know, mindset um, that we've gone through that first evolution that's kind of going into the kind of last big recession in 08. And then we kind of came out and we cut costs. And then we all felt a bit more confident. So we started flexing our muscles that, that cash was cheap or debt was cheap. And so we started expanding facilities and a big kind of you know, bull run. Um, and then we realized we couldn't quite grow into our, our new shoes and our new school uniform quite in the way that we thought we might be able to. I still think the way out of this is to grow out of it. I still think the way out of this is to ensure that we can make in, enable these schools to be able to grow enrollment, but they need to think about their business model fundamentally differently than they have been that you, know, you may have a small number of on-campus liberal arts but that they probably have strong brands they have alumni networks how can you look at a lifelong learning license fee and there's a lot of talk about the kind of netflixification of of education and what happens in that space but you know, you know we, we could we could do a, a you know, 10 of these calls but i do think the opportunity is for these institutions is to grow but they need to find their niche they need to find their place in the food chain they need to matter and I think that the place you start rather than tapping on doors consistently, I see it in the space and there's huge um, university relations, endowment relations, people being tapped up, rather than going to the, the thousands of people that, that love these brands and these institutions and saying, we helped you level up 10, 15, 20 years ago, let us help you level up again. Let us be part of that journey. And then finding affordable on-ramps because they've already got the data, they've already in the ecosystem, they're already champions of William and Mary as an example that they, they already love the brand they feel like they're part of William and Mary you know how do we help them do that lifelong learning how do we help them mums come back into the workforce in their mid-40s after they've been primary carers and say all right I, I want to be part of the of the world for the next 20 years I want to contribute I want to level up I think that, that we're, we're we're so we're so um, blind to this idea of like these silos within universities that, you know, alumni relationships, they just tap them up for cash and whenever they can get that. And then obviously there's sales and there's admissions and, and that, that cross-pollination. I think we, that the opportunity is for all of these universities to grow their way out of their, their troubles, to fill all these empty seats, but they need to do it by bringing back this idea of care. I, I think, Price is obviously a, a big consideration and, and we can't ignore the elephant in the room about the cost of these programs. And I think universities are loath to change the on-campus pricing, but the opportunity to on-ramp in professional education at a lower price point in stackable credentials and in, and in the micro-credential space um, over a, a period of time along that kind of you know, lifetime journey, I think is where the sweet spot of saying, rather than being doing a 50,000 dollar masters now is how can you do you know a flexible program that you pay five to seven thousand dollars and you pay that every five to seven years and so it becomes almost like a subscription where you end up paying probably a couple of hundred bucks for the next 30 years to your alma mater but you get to level up at every point along the food chain that you need to level up i'm glad you said that because i you know i know that uh, you commented on some of my posts i put on linkedin i believe that higher ed needs to look like a Marriott rewards program or now Marriott Bonvoy where yep. you attend and you get 
chit. You get you get some points of some uh, some kind for loyalty points. I just call them loyalty points. Where every single time you complete a class, every single time you pay a bill, every single time you do something positive towards your lifelong learning, you get these points. And these points can then be later redeemed to level up. It may be that you get to level up for free because you've been completing these tasks on time, whether it's paying your bills or completing your courses on time, right? Without without, uh, you know, going through and, and having uh, academic troubles and then redeem them later. And then, and then when they're gone, you pay again. I mean, that's, that's what people do for hotel rewards. But likewise, also when, when, when you employ a graduate, when, when, when you, you know, offer you know, exactly. it to young African-American women who don't get a chance to have a look in at some of the big investment banks, when you offer you know, white working class boys from the middle states that don't get the chances to become doctors or lawyers or, or, or meet the attorney general from the Southern District because you know, they, they, they grew up in Kansas and they don't get those shots. I think that, and, and then you're earning credit and you're paying it forward. This um, kind of Illuminati-esque um, alumni networks exist perhaps for some of, the, uh, some of the very elite colleges, but there should be the same sense of, of connective tissue um, between this generation and subsequent generations and former, uh, and that point system enables it to be fungible. And so you can end up taking all that value and all that network and the university can give you credit for effectively doing their job for them by helping this cohort get placed um, for introducing friends and family and cousins. It would also solve a lot of the problems we, and you and I have spoken about legacy and the US has this kind of dirty dark secret about legacy that just doesn't seem to want to get rid of. Uh, and you know, I've got some very strong opinions about it as a first gen kid who didn't get a look in at the elite because my face didn't fit. I, I think about that, that uh, I think about that point system all the time and go, you know, okay, so I'm doing well, I'm in higher education, my university, uh, you know, is, uh, is looking to bring in some first gen students, I don't need my points right now, I'm doing well, I could pay for my program later. So I'm going to donate, I'm going to donate my points, I don't have to donate money, I donate my points to, to help people access college, and you create a virtuous cycle. I mean, I just think that makes a lot of sense. And, uh, you know, I think there's going to be some real innovation, right? There's a difference between innovating because we have to and innovating because we really want to. And I think we're going to see more institutions really want to evolve in ways that, that, uh, oh gosh, I mean, look at Tesla, you know, look at Tesla, look what Tesla's doing. I mean, these, these guys who are creating companies now, Amazon, Tesla, they're just not creating the company. They want to go to the moon. They want to start a space company, you know, higher ed. We just want to, enroll more students. So how, how do we, how do we evolve to that next level where we're going to be doing something even more meaningful to help society in, in those ways? And I think about that all the time, how a model change could effectively free us up from some of the constraints. You know, we are still heavily regulated though in education, especially in the United States. There are a lot of regulations, accreditors, federal financial aid. And, and, and I, it. Those are important. I think that those are important. I don't think you want, I think a lot of people think about innovation and threats is, is that everyone wants to tear down the citadel and break the walls. I don't think that's the case. Certainly not my, my, my view. I think some of the enormous value is the citadel and the safe space to challenge and to be I challenged. Agree. So I, I think, I, I think our, our education institutions are some of the best places for people at, at multiple points in their life to be able to embrace, to learn, to challenge. But that won't in the future look like Letterman and, um, and you know, long summer nights, because quite frankly, there's not many of us that can afford to take three, four or five years out of, out of life because we have bills to pay and parents and children to take care of. What, what, but your point around a kind of 
rewards-based system or a sense of kind of kinship and paying it forward. The idea I can take all my points and convert them and help other you know, children who are less fortunate level up. I'd love to see the idea of leg you can only be part of legacy if you if you commit to giving you know n of your estate and wealth to that institution to help students from you know low income backgrounds and underrepresented you can't be a legacy without doing that anymore and that's you know you bind a legal contract if you want to take a legacy seat then you pay it forward with 5% of your wealth for life you know right. i think that's what an income share agreement could be really potent and powerful um, because you've effectively walked the front of the queue and by virtue of that you've you've pushed other people off the list or off the cliff and so because because we all know the universities cap um enrollments i, I you know I, you know there are many people that are far more eloquent around <laughs> enrollments and we could probably go down a rabbit hole but i do think as you say that there needs to be a bit of a, a turning turning of the tides and, and and perhaps sometimes that has to be a shock moment and maybe and, and this is not to, to, to um, uh, undermine the, the, the huge human loss of this COVID tragedy, but maybe COVID is going to end up being, you know, the immunity we all need to think about things differently and to challenge the way that we've always done things and to, to take these 24, 36 months to really come back and think, you know, we've had a damn tough three years and how do we enable you know, more people to access this opportunity, more people to be part of what we do at an affordable price. And really, I, 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 I will go on and on about it. How do we ensure that universities only succeed when the students they're selling their product to, selling this idea of a better life, they only get paid for that when that student gets that better life. Otherwise, every brochure up and down the country from, and every website needs to change across every education institution. So before before we get to our final couple of questions here, I want you to talk about the EdAid Foundation. Um, what are you doing with the foundation, and uh, you know why is it important to the overall strategy for EdAid? I think you may, you may and maybe some of the listeners may have noticed that I probably think about things in slightly different ways. Um, you know, we built EdAid. We don't have external shareholders. I built the business and the foundation to really help students like myself. My parents never got a chance to go to college first time round. They went to community college and evening school to become public servants as a nurse and a teacher, respectively. My brothers are in the military. And, you know, there, 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 are, there are lines that are drawn in, in society and often it's very difficult to bridge those divides. And I was lucky from a background in professional sport to be able to build my own businesses that I've been able to cross that divide to build my own successes. And for me, really, the foundation was an, is an integral part of what we do. So we have registered charities in every country. We, we, we use the work that we do in the foundation to really help those who don't have the opportunities to level up. Uh, and, and a cl classic example about in the UK is that we have many children who came into the UK as asylum seekers, um, have lived here all their lives, but aren't deemed British citizens. And so we help pay for them to become citizens. And then they pay that money back into the pot interest-free over there, you know, uh, over, over a year or so. And so they can then go on to university and we work with their parents to do so. And it's just a little way of them leveling up that way. They can, they get to be able to be deemed to be UK domestic payers, a bit like state versus in-state versus out-state. They pay a lot less for their education. Otherwise they'd have to pay a hundred thousand pounds rather than 27,000 pounds to do their undergrad in the UK. So that there are small things that we do. And so we take, 
a lot of the free cash flow that we have from MedAid and reinvest it into our foundations. We have a big program in the US launching later this year around helping those that have been affected by um, the COVID crisis and are effectively unemployed level up um, with a huge goal to train you know, a million Americans in some of these short vocational programs. And you know, it, it's a huge part of what we do. And then we provide you know, the payment plans and the financial muscle to help students. Um, a lot of uh, first generation, you know, people of color, you know, British Muslim students, we have a large number of programs about helping those that can't take on traditional finance from having alternative payment plans. And so we haven't really put lipstick on the pig as a financial services business and said, you know, we do some horrible things over here, but look, you, hey, we've got a foundation. You know, everything we do is, is, is built on first principles around you know, transparency, around fair, affordable finance, and around cutting out a lot of the bullshit that, that you see you know, spinning around the world. And it's amazing. I used to have this line when we first got regulated that, that why do all lenders and financial services providers put all the important stuff into the small print where you can't read it? And so we, we, we firmly believe in kind of that idea of transparency around affordability. And the other thing is that we don't get paid by, so our business model is our universities pay us to administer the, the, the technology and the lending as a service platform on their behalf. And then we take that cash and we reinvest it back into our foundation and our platform to grow the business. So this isn't a, you know, we have our foundation, but we are a for-profit technology business that believes in helping you know, the next million Americans and Brits and Europeans you know, level up. And, and so that really is, you know, we don't need to create kind of fanciful mission statements, you know, that kind of make us sound interesting. Ultimately, we win and die by helping students level up. And if we don't do a good job of that, we won't succeed. I love it. Let's, uh, let's get to our final two questions. Tom, what did we need to talk about today regarding EdAid that we didn't get a chance to talk about? Anything that you want to say about EdAid that uh, you didn't get a chance to say? And number two, what do you think the future of higher education is going to look like? So number one, absolutely not, not, no sales pitch from us. I think what we always seek to do is to, to be challenged, to challenge people's thinking. I think we're, we're so early in our process. I was having a conversation today about a lot of fast growing tech companies. I mean, we're growing at a couple of hundred percent a year on year for the last three or four years and say we should fund somewhere around 30 to 40,000 students this year. And then next year will be a bit of a big breakout year for us because we'll, we'll move into the kind of 100,000 odd students. Um, and I think what's so important, there's nothing more important to us than the students we have on hand and the partners that we work with. So we tend to get a lot of kind of VC and hedge funds coming and saying, well, if we gave you this, you could do this. And, and actually we <laughs> tend to call bullshit on it and say, actually there's nothing nice. more important than the students we serve today and doing a great job by them and the partners we already work with. As I had mentioned before, Flatiron School, General Assembly, you know, uh, to you, the trilogy program they do in terms of access and affordability, it's huge, the Morehouse work um, uh, and the work they do at Simmons with nursing. I think these are the programs that we, you know, we live and die for because they're the ones that we, we have to do today. And it's great that we get new partners coming on board and, my goodness, we'd love to change the, the entire game. But I, I think from first principles that we focus on, it's, it's, it's the student and the university we have in hand and just doing a great job by them. And then on the back of that, you know, the, the, the future will take care of itself if we continue to kind of build, build you know, great outcomes for those students. So, but in that regard, we'd love to hear from provosts and admissions leaders, and we'd love to hear where people think we're wrong and to be challenged on our, on our thesis. But fundamentally, you know, we believe that every single education provider by 2030 will have skin in the game and some of its tuition fee, if not all of its tuition fee at risk. 
And I guess that blends into your second question. Yeah, we're, yeah, I would not be able to be where I, I've been. I say first generation college kid, I went to Royal Holloway, which is a small part of the University of London. It was originally a women's only university. It's the most beautiful campus in London. Um, and whilst it was an, a totally imperfect experience, I was a scholarship student. I got to a chance to level up and I mo moved from being in a household income kind of sub 30,000 pounds with two working parents to earning double what my parents earned moving into kind of management consultancy and investment banking within a year of leaving university. I cannot take the personal credit for all of that. The signal I got from going to that university, the, the social status or whatever you want to call it or the, the credential enabled me to level up. I don't think that's changed. I think that we need to look at price of higher education. We need to find more affordable bite-sized chunks. And we need to ensure that those students who've, the many millions of students that have got some college or no college or no, with no certification, get a chance to finish and complete and, and, and pay that forward. I think that's really where the opportunity lies. All these empty seats, all these colleges, which have got you know, spare seats in the room, come and find us. We'll help you grow enrollment with students from underrepresented backgrounds. You'll see your revenue grow and, and, and your completion rates grow. Um, and I think, and if we're not part of the solution, you know, then absolutely tell us where we're, we're going wrong and we'll, we'll try, and, try and work with you to, to be part of the solution. But I think that it's about actually growing the GDP of the space rather than all this kind of trying to eat each other's lunch, which is what seems to be the current kind of um, dogma that's kind of bandied around in the space. Well, he won't uh, give you a sales pitch, but I certainly will. Eddie.com. It's a mistake if you don't check it out. Tom is doing incredible work. I, I think there's a there's a group of folks that we've been able to interview here at EdUp that are at the front end of change that, that, that represent what I think the future of higher ed is going to look like. I believe Tom is absolutely one of those people. Uh, whether aid aid is uh, something that you uh, check out for your university because you think it can help you with enrollment and, and your financial uh, uh, challenges, check him out. If you don't think it will, check him out anyway. He's got some amazing thoughts. Uh, Edaid.com is the website. Tom, it's been a pleasure. Uh, you are CEO and founder of Edaid, and uh, I had a great time today. I hope you did too. Uh, Jerry, it's a real pleasure. I'd love to riff again sometime. Hey, everybody, we hope you enjoyed that episode of the EdUp Experience. To learn more about the EdUp Experience, please visit our website at www.edupexperience.com and subscribe to our email list. Please share this podcast, head over to Apple, and please give us a rating and review. We appreciate your feedback. And of course, subscribe to the EdUp Experience so you're notified when our episodes drop. Here at the EdUp Experience, our goal is to make education your business. Thanks for listening.